0: Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast.
1: Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe
2: Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're
0: really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. And
2: God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding. His church is growing.
1: It's not what's the purpose of my life. It's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay
2: curious. Stay curious. Think well, advance good. This is Q. Actually, there was a study done about five years ago where sexual assault victims were asked, Who did you think would be the most helpful when you were abused? And churches and pastors were number one and two in that study. Then the victims were asked the follow up question, Who actually was the most helpful? when you were abused. And when they asked that question, Christian organizations, churches ranked dead last behind the option of other.
0: Hi, and welcome to this week's Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons on Faith Radio. I'm Paul Perret with Gabe, and here at Q, we seek to have conversations around many issues that affect our world, our lives, and the lives of those we love, including those we seek to minister to. And oftentimes, the conversations are hard, have so many levels and touch in areas of deep pain. They sometimes are hard to listen to. Well, this week's conversation may be one of those. But as you hear each week, Q seeks to stay curious, think well, and advance good. And with that, listening is important. And Gabe... This week we're going to lean in and listen to a conversation from last year's Culture Summit around the painful topic of sexual abuse with someone who knows it all too well. Help us get ready for this week's conversation.
1: been sobering over the last really couple of decades to hear about the way sexual abuse has gone forward, especially under the pretense of religion or religious environments. And we've seen that play out through multiple scandals. We've seen a lot of conversation around it. Obviously, over the last few years, the Me Too movement, then the Church Too movement started to unveil more of this happening within our current church environments. And so we wanted to bring the expert who's been walking through this with so many different people who've experienced this, who've been exploited, and she has been such a defender of those rights. She's been one that stood up to those who have been the victims of this. She's an attorney and advocate. Her name's Rachel Den Hollander. You've probably heard about her. She's someone who, in 2016, became the first woman to pursue criminal charges and speak publicly against USA Gymnastics Team Dr. Larry Nassar, which, if you didn't follow that story, after that, over 300 women came forward as survivors of this man's abuse. It eventually led to his life imprisonment. She also wrote a book in 2019 of her story and her journey called What is a Girl Worth? And she's written two children's books now called How Much is a Little Girl Worth and How Much is a Little Boy Worth? But Rachel has done such an incredible job of not only being an advocate, a fighter, um, but she's so knowledgeable about the cultures that get created around sexual abuse and the ways to spot it early. And really caused the church and leaders in the church and in institutions that carry the name Christian to lead in this, to do a better job, to be more proactive. And so I think you're going to enjoy hearing my conversation with Rachel. Let's listen in now. Thank you for being with us as well and joining us. Your story is so important. You've helped pioneer and break through in some areas that few people ever would have imagined uh, were possible. Could you just describe a little bit how that experience of becoming the first to pursue criminal charges, just how that's impacted your life and how you view transparency and justice now that you look back over these last five years?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I actually have to correct the record a little bit. I wasn't the first to file a police report. I was the first to do so publicly. And the reason I did so publicly was because having understood the dynamics of abuse, I was very confident at the point that I started to realize who Larry really must be, uh, that there was no way others who had come before me hadn't tried to stop him. And the fact that he got to me in the exam room and that he continued to be able to treat young girls. That was clear to me that meant that whoever was speaking up was being silenced. And so the conversation I had with my mom, even as a 17-year-old, when I started to put the pieces together was, there's no way to do this quietly. Um, but I really want to I really want to highlight the number of women who actually did speak up and who filed those police reports, because the reality is that the reason I had to do the things the way I did and choose to relinquish my privacy and my family's privacy and to put the details of my assault out on an international platform was because we do have such a problem culturally with being able to recognize abuse and stop abusers. And that extends significantly, unfortunately, into our law enforcement uh, and into into our legal practice, our prosecutorial work. Uh, And so for me as a Christian, uh, you know, a huge part of that motivation uh, was being able to sacrificially love the people around me and to do what I could no matter to do the right thing, no matter what it cost. Um, But unfortunately it took years of wrestling through theological concepts of justice and forgiveness And the way that churches so often mishandle those concepts uh, to really be healed enough to take that step and to see the opportunity to take that step.
1: Well, Rachel, could you have imagined when you did go public that it would have had the impact that it then, you know, that we now look back and see how historic that was, how big of a breakthrough that was?
2: No, you know, I I was confident as to the extent of the abuse. I knew there would be hundreds of victims out there um, because unfortunately predators are able often to abuse for decades at a time. So the scope did not surprise me. What I didn't anticipate was actually being successful, honestly, because the reality is out of every 300 rapes reported to the police, only about six result in criminal charges, only five result in conviction and jail time. And according to the Department of Justice, the average sentence for a sexual abuser, if you happen to be one of those lucky five, the average sentence is less than the average sentence for possession of a controlled substance. So at the point I came forward, I was very aware of the uphill battle I was facing from a cultural and societal standpoint, uh, facing a Big Ten university and the governing body for USA Gymnastics. And I was aware of how difficult it is even to get rape prosecuted, much less non-rape sexual assault. Um, so that what we actually saw happen in the Nasser case is very much the exception, not the norm.
1: Well, you've dealt with many other cases of abuse as an attorney and as an advocate. I'm wondering, as you sit in a room here with leaders watching online around the world, they need to understand better how to notice these warning signs. It seems like part of the problem is there's plenty of warning signs with the 2020 hindsight, but there's not a lot of proactive understanding of some of these dynamics that if they were more aware or more alert— they could be a part of a solution before tragedy strikes. Could you help us better understand what some of those might be?
2: Yeah. So, you know, there's, I get this question a lot. What's, what's the most important thing that I can do to protect children, protect women? And most of the time when people ask that question, they're thinking policy. You know, what should my nursery policy look like? What should my ministry policy look like? Policy is important. Child protection policies are important. You need to have something to enforce Uh, And so that's an important dynamic, but what we need to understand even more is the culture and the community that we've shaped in our organization, because it's the culture and the community that's either going to make your institution safe for a predator or safe for a victim to speak up. And that has more to do with how you message and understand and communicate abuse and abusive dynamics than it does your child protection policy. So what we know about abusers is that 93% of them identify as religious or very religious, 93%. wow. And some of the best research on abusers, uh, Ann Salter is one of the foremost experts in pedophilia. Uh, and she did some extensive research on pedophiles and how they selected the environments and uh, the children that they abused. And something that came out in her research that shocked even her at the time was that abusers intentionally targeted faith-based communities. And the reason they targeted those faith-based communities is because our misunderstanding of theology, the way we misunderstand justice and forgiveness, the way we mishandle concepts like divisiveness and unity, the way we handle authority and give pastors and spiritual leaders almost unfettered authority. You know, this this is the man of God. You don't speak against the man of God. The way we handle those concepts creates the perfect place for an abuser to be safe. And they know that. And that also signals to the victims, I'm not safe to speak up. So how you communicate about issues of abuse, how you talk about it on your social media platforms, uh, how you interact on those issues, how public you are uh, about your approach to abuse. That's what signals to the predators and to the victims whether or not they're going to be safe to either abuse or to speak up when abuse occurs.
1: Well, it's disheartening to hear that and to understand how much this is prevalent within the church. And I think for leaders who are listening, who are either pastors of churches on staff or they're working in these types of religious institutions, you can start to see the priority shifts that these leaders have to be the ones being proactive about it. So you you talked about some practical things, how you communicate on social media. What else would you say and what resources exist that pastors who are hearing about this for the first time and they knew this could be a problem, but they're maybe thinking, well, I don't think this is a problem in my church. It's, it's not something maybe that we're going to deal with. What are some of the ways that you would maybe raise their alert a little bit and, and get them a little more on guard that this could be happening underneath your nose in a way that you don't understand unless you're starting to put some of these types of, not just policies, but create a culture that would help people feel the weight of this issue?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think the first thing we have to grapple with is how prevalent it is in the church. Now, abuse victims, just in general, uh, there's the same number of abuse victims in the church as there is in the non-church community. So, but, you know, by and large, when a pastor is preaching uh, at the front of his ministry, the front of his church, you look out in the congregation, one out of four women that you see have been sexually assaulted, one out of three have been subjected to domestic violence and one out of six men and the wounds that those victims carry have direct implications for how they understand the gospel, how they understand church community, how they understand the nature and character of God. And we've got to understand that these really are gospel issues. Uh, so you have the same rates of abuse taking place in terms of abuse victims, but what we also know about Protestant organizations and evangelical organizations is that we actually have arguably a problem bigger than even the Roman Catholic church. You know, everybody thinks that the Roman Catholic church is kind of the byword for abuse in religious circles. But if you look at the top three insurance companies for Protestant ministries and organizations, Those three insurance companies actually report annually a higher number of reported claims and paying out claims for sexual abuse by clergy or authority figures in the congregation higher than the Catholic Church, Wow! despite the fact that the Catholic Church actually has a much more structured hierarchy where they do a better job keeping track. So what that indicates to us is that our rates are actually higher in Protestant organizations than they are in the Catholic Church. We just don't catch them as well. In addition to that, if you look at the reasons that ministries are held liable in the federal court system, the top out of the top 10 reasons, number one, almost exclusively, is sexual abuse in the church. It's so the number one reason churches face liability. Every once in a while, that gets edged out by property disputes. Hmm. But again, what that tells us is we actually have a very high rate of sexual abuse taking place in the church. Now, the good news is there are phenomenal resources out there. The top one that I recommend is a group called Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in a Christian Environment, Grace. Grace is a training organization They've got two branches. They have a training organization that comes in and trains your ministry from the ground up, not just on the policy aspect, which is critical, but on the heart aspect, understanding abuse and abusive dynamics, understanding the heart of God for the wounded and the suffering and the little ones. Grace is my top pick, hands down for child abuse training. Uh, and when you're looking for a group to do your child abuse policies, here are just some general guidelines to look for. Look for a group that is trusted in the advocacy world, trusted by survivors. If you're working with a group that's not trusted by survivors, that should be a red flag to you. Look for a group that is not tied to an insurance industry. If you're doing, if you're getting your training from a group that's tied to an insurance company, the main focus is gonna be on liability. Mm. The main focus is not going to be so much on understanding the heart of abuse. Uh, and so those are some dynamics to look for. But then Grace also has an investigative branch where if you have an allegation of abuse, especially against somebody who's in authority, they have the ability to come in with some of the best experts in abuse and to guide your church through the crisis response and to do an investigation to help give you guidance uh, because as I as, with, according with the statistics I already gave, even if you report that abuse to the police, which you should do immediately, those allegations it's likely going to be years before you get any real guidance from our justice system. You've got to have experts trained in crisis response to help guide you through that process. And grace is the group I recommend hands down.
1: Well, Rachel, I mean, you, you just said a lot in just a few minutes that's significant one that the evangelical church and the Protestant church has a bigger problem with this than the Catholic church. I think for a lot of people that's new information. And then secondly, I thought very practical So many churches are probably getting advice from insurance. They're only thinking about liability and protection and not necessarily putting first the victim. And we as Christians in the church, that should be our first priority, not just self-protection and self-preservation. So thank you for saying that. And also the practical help with grace. Here's a question I have for you. So it seems like there are a lot of stories that we hear where um, a leader of an organization, Ravi Zacharias comes to mind, has a board, has a group of people that's um, responsible for, for that leader, for the spiritual leadership, um, and maybe aren't aware that these things are happening. And, and the question is, is, is that one of ignorance? Is it one of negligence? Um, how can boards do a better job? How can elders do a better job of ensuring that there's real accountability for spiritual leaders?
2: Absolutely. Uh, You know, right now, RZIM is undergoing an extensive process with a group called Guidepost Solutions. So I can't speak to, uh, to a lot of the specifics right now while we're waiting for that report to come out. But I do think it's a case study that's worth looking at because you're right. A lot of times, but most times, ministries mishandle claims of abuse. Actually, there was a study done about five years ago where sexual assault victims were asked, who did you think would be the most helpful when you were abused? And churches and pastors were number one and two in that study. Then the victims were asked the follow-up question, who actually was the most helpful when you were abused? And when they asked that question, Christian organizations, churches ranked dead last behind the option of other. So we do have a chronic problem and evangelicalism with being able to respond well to abuse. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But a primary one is, A, it's, it really boils down to our theology, our theology of authority, oftentimes our theology of counseling. Uh, mishandling doctrines like the sufficiency of scripture. The sufficiency of scripture is something we all subscribe to. But a lot of times in conservative churches and organizations in particular, what that means is we don't get training from somebody who's actually an expert in the field, both in recognizing the signs of abuse, understanding abusive dynamics, knowing what trauma looks like, knowing what evidence looks like. And so we're not equipped To handle those things. And ultimately, we're not equipped because of a theological hangup. And that's part of why it's so difficult to turn the tide in Christian organizations is because when you start talking about these issues, the immediate response is, oh, these people are bitter and angry. They want to destroy the church, Um, you know, and, and they're attacking us for our theology. And it actually makes ministries batten down the hatches harder instead of getting the help they need. Yeah. We also absolutely have dynamics of being afraid of liability rather than trusting that God is going to do with our ministry exactly what he's intended for it to do. And understanding that as Christians, we are called to bring light into the darkness. But again, that's a theological concept. We, we say it, but we don't act like it. Mm. And so we have, it's really our theology. We need to understand our theology well, and then we need to live it out accurately.
1: Yeah, that's good. Well, Rachel, in your book, What Is a Girl Worth? You talk about the idea of survivors being reluctant to speak out. Um, why, why do you think this is the case beyond maybe the obvious embarrassment or not sure they're gonna be believed? What, what are some of the other motivators for why somebody wouldn't speak out? And then as a survivor, what's the power of someone actually listening to your story?
2: Yeah, By and large, it's the community response. See, survivors are always asking the question, who is safe? And they're watching the way that abuse is talked about by their leaders, by their community, by their church structure. And we see it happen all the time. You know, issues of sexual abuse and sexual harassment are constantly coming up. They come up in political context. They come up in judicial hearings. They come up in sports hearings. It's just something that's talked about all the time. And what people don't realize, leaders in particular, is that when they comment on those articles or on those news stories or they have the knee-jerk reaction, that's not possible because... The survivors in your organization see that, and they know that's how much they really understand about abuse. That's how much it really matters to them. If I disclose, that's the level of knowledge they're working with. They don't know enough to be able to understand that I'm telling the truth, to be able to know what evidence looks like, to understand trauma and trauma responses. Uh, And so because of that, victims know the instant community response they're typically going to receive is I'm not sure I believe you. You're out to destroy a good man, uh, wanting to do an internal investigation in the church before reporting to police, and just often having absolutely no idea how to handle it. Um, But unfortunately, most victims will tell you that the organizations that shielded the predator oftentimes really almost destroyed them. The community response they received was every bit as damaging, if not more so than the abuse, because now it's not just one person you can't trust. It's your entire community you can't trust. Hmm. It's the people who have defined concepts of justice and forgiveness, who have defined the character of God for you. And now they're telling you that something that happened to you that was terrible really wasn't that bad at all, or that it's outweighed by the other good things that are done. The Hmm. depth of that damage is catastrophic.
1: Wow. Well, Rachel, thank you for addressing this and leading the way. I'm, I'm one specific question around this topic that comes up a lot of times is the victim should always be believed. I mean, that's, that's tends to be the new narrative since the me too movement. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you believe is the way the church should respond to any accusation?
2: So I think that phrase isn't well understood. Now, I was a debater in high school and the first thing we were always taught in debate is define your terms. You know, whoever, whoever defines the terms controls the debate. So we need to really understand what people mean when they say believe women. When we say believe women, we don't mean that everything that comes out of a woman's mouth is automatically true and we don't do an investigation. There's not a good investigation that's done. That's not what believe women means. What believe women actually means is live in the reality that we have. And so what that means is understand trauma and trauma dynamics so that you don't take things that are really signs of trauma and say, oh, that's evidence that uh, that she's making it up. It means understand the dynamics of abuse and the rates of abuse. Understand what the evidence actually shows about false reporting. Best studies have shown that between 92 and 98% of disclosures of abuse are true. It means understanding the community responses. It means understanding that if you shut the woman down and you indicate that you don't trust or believe what she's saying, what you really shut down done is shut down the evidence chain. You're not going to get to the evidence because you've already communicated that you're really not sure and she's not safe. And so when we say, believe women, we root, what we mean is live in the reality of the culture and the society that we have, have a knowledge-based understanding of abuse and abusive dynamics and come from the standpoint that 92 to 98% of disclosures are going to be real. And if you don't approach it that way, you're going to shut down the chain of evidence that you have. And sometimes the objection to this really, again, come from misunderstood theology. You know, we are so careful how we parse scripture until it comes to abuse and abuse-related issues, mm. you know, just a really great, easy example of this is you always hear the responses, "Well, only up, only upon the testimony of two or three witnesses," and without taking into the context of Proverbs and the point of that passage being, "Look, you need to hear the evidence before you pass judgment." before you issue correction correctional discipline, and without realizing that even in Proverbs itself, if you take the context of the passages, a witness is defined as someone who has come to know of the event. In a sexual abuse context, that means a prior disclosure. That means therapy notes. Uh, and so we, don't, we are just so sloppy with how we handle scriptural principles of justice, and that leads us to make devastating mistakes.
1: Well Rachel I think we all just appreciate the the way in which you understand this topic so well and how much you've used your own story to now advocate on behalf of those who don't have the voice and for those organizations and leaders that don't understand this concept. We've seen so many people that get frustrated with the church and you easily could have been one of them and you leave and you just go away from it entirely and it, and instead you've done the opposite You've turned back and you said, I'm going to be a part of helping reform and bring reformation to the church in this area. So we just thank you for your service. Thank you for your story. Thank you for being transparent. Thank you for your courage. And thank you for all the amazing work you're going to do on behalf of so many that need this voice. So thank you.
0: Well, this is Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons and an important conversation there, Gabe, you had with former gymnast and now anti-sexual abuse advocate Rachel Den Hollander around the topic of ending sexual abuse. Frankly, this hasn't been an easy show to listen to. But Gabe, thanks for being willing not only to bring it to us today, but when the Culture Summit happened last year, you, Rebecca, and the team were willing to, as they say, go there. That, in spite of how uncomfortable it must have been to even address the issue.
1: I think this quote that you just heard where she said, when we say believe women, we don't mean that everything that comes out of a woman's mouth is true. What it actually means is live in the reality we have and understand trauma and trauma dynamics. She also mentioned that we have a chronic problem in evangelicalism with being able to respond well to abuse. A primary reason is our theology of authority and counseling. She, she clearly was calling out some areas that we need to be paying more attention to as Christian leaders. And so if you're listening to this, I would encourage you, follow Rachel, follow her work, be involved in this kind of work in any environment that you're in to make sure the stories that are being told are both heard and honored, as well as that the work being done to create cultures that prevent this kind of sexual abuse from going forward are put in place in any area that that you lead. Uh, And so thank you again for being a part of these conversations. Some of them Inspiring some of them are challenging to us, some of them just informing you about areas, maybe issues, concerns that you you didn't personally have or experience, but that you need to be aware of.
0: Yeah. And regardless of whether you're in leadership or not, that's why, Gabe, you and the team at Q bring us this show, plus features so much good thought provoking content on the Q Media platform and host live events like the 2022 Culture Summit now less than two weeks away, April 28th and 29th.
1: Hosted here in Nashville, but broadcast all over the U.S. around the world. You're going to be able to participate with us live wherever you're at. I would encourage you to mark your calendars now. It's nine to five central time. Both days, our lunch breaks will have breakouts that you can take in 15-minute breakouts from key leaders on every kind of topic you could imagine. But at qideas.org slash 2022, you can actually go in and check it out. Go see how that experience is going to play out. If you want to host this in your own environment, it could be your home, it could be your office, it could be your church, it could be for your staff leadership, it could be for your entire congregation through our Q Media live event app. It's going to be a beautiful experience for anybody watching it, where you're going to get to really sit there on the front row and hear the conversations that we must be having as leaders in the church and as Christians who want to be a part of navigating a very chaotic, uh, confusing, and sometimes distorted future that we're walking into, and we want to be those who lead with truth, who lead with confidence, and have clarity.
0: Gabe, if I might, since we have time, here are just some of the topics and speakers scheduled for this year's Culture Summit. You got journalist and author Malcolm Gladwell, as well as Andy Crouch and Kelly Kapick, who we heard not too long ago here on Q Ideas, all from their own perspectives dealing with the issue of recovering our humanity. There'll be several talks and breakouts around social media and the impact of our technology. Preston Sprinkle will be back leading a breakout dealing with the gender question, plus talks around various issues around the family, moving. Beyond Anti-Racism, that with George Ansey, and so much more. So whether you are there live or watching virtually, Gabe, it's going to be a packed two days.
1: So I hope you'll join us. You can go to qideas.org slash 2022 to see all the ways you can do that virtually, how you can gather people, and we hope that you'll be a part of that with us. So I hope you have a wonderful week, and we'll look forward to our continued conversations on you ideas next week.
0: Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com.